Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I say that people can tell you anything, but it's what they actually do that makes the difference. And so leadership is about identifying something that you're passionate about, standing up for it, speaking up for it, and doing it. You've got to be out in front. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Betty Staten, class of 1979, whose career includes almost 20 years on the Kings County Family Court bench. In her current role, she serves as president of Brooklyn Programs at Legal Services New York City. I am happy to welcome Judge Staten, class of 79, to the podcast to discuss leadership and, among other things, service. So welcome. Thank you. And because this podcast is oriented around women, I always like to start with this. What was your experience as a law student, particularly as a woman law student? Well, my experience as a law student, um, because of my age and because I had these responsibilities for raising two sons, I didn't spend much time on campus. Mm -hmm. I came here in the morning early to study because I couldn't study at home. And I went to my classes and then I went home. So essentially, except for the meetings I might have with BALSA, because I did join some committees with BALSA. In fact, the recruiting committee, which enabled me to travel to different historically black colleges to recruit uh, potential law students and other things that I did. So my experience as a law student, I can't identify any unpleasantness. One of the things that always comes back to my mind in my experience is that because I came to school very early, I would sit in the student lounge and um, students would come to me, women students would come to me and they would say, oh, how do you do it? You know, you're a mother, you have children, and you're keeping up with class. It's just so much. This is first year, of course. And so I had a practice of counseling um, Mm -hmm. those students uh, to let them know, you know, you are here because you deserve to be here. Uh, This is a place that they wanted you. And ultimately, you'll be here. You'll stay here. You just have to... Think about why you're here. Think about the fact that you're brilliant, smart, accomplished, and that actually you you can do whatever you decide to do. I love that you were already, as a 1L, you were already serving the role as the wise counselor. Yes, I was. <laughs> this is this is true. You attended law school later in life. I, I didn't even go to college until after I was a mother, mm. and it was a, it was a particular challenge, and I remember that decision and you and I've talked a little bit about that what it's like yes. to be yes a student when everybody else is kind of oh, my experience was and I think you've talked about that too is that I have to be the serious responsible one yes when everybody else gets to be kind of out having fun or it seems like they are um what motivated you to go to school to pursue the law when you were already 
seemingly loaded with responsibilities. I was loaded with responsibilities, that's true, you know. When I graduated from high school, all of the friends that graduated with me were headed towards educational careers. And so I said I wanted to be a teacher also. About a year into my studies, I met this tall, handsome man who said he was going to make me his wife and that I wouldn't have to work and blah, blah, blah. And that was in the 50s. And, of course, women in the 50s, well, you know, they aspire to be a wife and a mother. So I dropped out of college. And I did not marry that tall, handsome man. I subsequently married someone else. And when that marriage did not work out, I was raising my sons by myself. And given a lot of responsibilities at work, which I was not being compensated for, and I realized the reason for that was because I didn't have credentials. And so one day I was working at a private school, and a parent said to me, Betty, why didn't you finish your education? I said, oh, I'm planning to go back. She said, go. Go today. And I just, like, got in my car and went to Brooklyn College and tried to re-enroll they couldn't find my records, and I subsequently found out it was because I was telling them my married name when I was in school and my maiden name, and I eventually went back to school. When I went back to school 18 years after dropping out, I had changed career goals to be a psychiatric social worker because mm-hmm. I was working with parents and students and all. But in the middle of that, I call it divine intervention. A relative of mine said to me one day, did you ever think about being a lawyer? I had never thought about being a lawyer. I had no role models that were lawyers. I knew no lawyers. And it was nothing that had ever crossed my mind. But somehow or other when she said that, and she said, I think you'd be a great lawyer, it resonated with me like no other career had. And I immediately changed my career goals to become a lawyer. So I was motivated also by the fact that I was later in a daycare center and I was working with parents and someone from the legal services organization, it was called Community Action for Legal Services at that time, came and made a presentation about how you get benefits for people who deserve benefits. And of course, I had been struggling with that, trying to find out how to serve the parents better. And this resonated with me again. Oh, so if I become a lawyer, I have the knowledge and the skills and the know-how that I can really fight for these parents and I can get better services for them. So that was a motivation also. One of the things that I love about this story, and you've told me bits and pieces of this before, is that there is no resentment, there is no blame, there is a sense of such calm accountability, like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to get up immediately, and I'm going to change course, and I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get the credentials. That's exactly how it was. And... um Now, the NYU story is a whole new kind of story. I had applied to every law school you could name in the city and Harvard and Yale. Nothing outside because I had two sons at that time, and I didn't want to relocate. I got accepted to a school in South Carolina and a school in D.C. without even applying. And I had been accepted to St. John's. 
But a woman that I was working with said to me, did you apply to NYU? I had not applied to NYU. She said, oh, they like people like you because you're an older student and you've done all these things and you've been all these places and you're working. So I immediately applied to NYU. I was really concerned because it was way past the date. It was practically people being accepted already. And someone else said, well, get a personal interview. They see you, you know, they'll know more about you. And I was granted a personal interview, a young law student uh, who was on the admission committee interviewed me. And I subsequently learned that Gladys Carrion, who was a law student and on the admission committee, advocated, you know, looked at my story and said, you know, look at what she's done. But bottom line, I was accepted sometime in July Mm -hmm. (laughs) with a full scholarship and a stipend for three years. Wow. How old were the boys? When I entered law school, in 76, my oldest was 11 going on 12, and the youngest was not, uh, 8 going on 9. This was a hot time in the world for civil rights. What was it like being a black woman in law school at that point? Well, again, I, I sort of was isolated from that because... I was spending so much time away from my children. I couldn't be active mm-hmm. in what was going on. It was the Baki and the ki- and the students were right. you know, protesting over Baki and the Balsa students. They were really in. And I would go to the meetings and a few things, but I wasn't really deeply involved in the fight because of my responsibilities. I felt, oh, you know, I neglected these children enough. I can't, unless I start carrying them off with me or everywhere I go, which... In retrospect, I should have done <laughs> would made them much more aware. But they were aware from watching television uh, and what was going on with the civil rights disturbances and all. So I sort of, and I don't know whether it was just my attitude. I'd go in, I'd do what I had to do. But I wasn't inflamed mm-hmm. the way some students were. And I couldn't, they were much younger. And I and I, th- I think a lot of that might have been to my age. By then I was in my 40s. Uh, I had experienced a lot and had come to a place of knowing what I could do, doing what I could do, but not being so caught up that I get aggravated and upset about how things are. Just like today, you know, there's so much going on today. And you look and say, well, what can I do? What can I do without driving myself crazy, without being so angry that it actually affects you in a physical way when you can't really make the kind of changes that you feel should be made? And so I talk to students. I, I do what I can do in a way that educates my community and educates students and try to direct them in a path where they can make a difference, you know. That's what you can do. You you think about, and I give away so much money because, you know, for the cause. I stop looking at my emails because it's so, no, no, no. Let me have a little bit left for myself. Well, you burn out if you if you get, as you say, inflamed, and it can really, John Sexton says, 
he calls these students who go to school when they've had a little life under their belt, older, wiser law students, mm -hmm. the owls, mm. um, that kind of pondering student who has a little equanimity. And there's great value in that. And you have, I think serving the community has always been your passion. Yes. And it's been a slower burn. And so I think the law has allowed you to serve that call. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's been the case? Well, you know, when you go out to the community, oftentimes you have to create your credibility. Well, just being a lawyer gives you a certain amount of credibility. And then after you're a judge, you know, they never stop calling you a judge. But because of the area of practice I chose, I never, I never got away from doing what needed to be done first and looking for compensation second. <laughs> that was one of the issues when I started my own law firm. I started my law firm with two other African-American women. We were the first African-American law firm in the state of New York, but we all came from a legal services background. And so I found it so difficult to like really charge for what our business was worth. That was the most difficult part for me. You know, other people, are, but you really want to address the issue. Right. <laughs> That's your love. And, you know, later on someone said to me, which I say to my friends that are practicing now, you can do the work and not get paid or not do the work and not get paid. <laughs> now, which one do you want to do? And so we essentially did a lot of the work that we didn't get paid for. Mm -hmm. But it was still a sense of satisfaction in a way that you were able to resolve a problem that someone had that they could not get help anyplace else for. But I feel much better doing it for legal services because I know I will get paid. <laughs> I'll get a salary somewhere. But it was always my passion. It was my passion, not my, only in my legal career, but even before that. I worked at a private school for that really, really taught. I mean, the teachers were a lot of teachers from the Caribbean. And my son, for instance, my oldest son graduated at 15 and a half, went to Brooklyn Tech and did very well. Came out of that school. He started school at like two and a half, you know. Wow. So they really, really taught the students. And I don't know, some of the methods should be used for some of the stuff that's going on in our schools today. <laughs> but, um, and as a judge, I went on the family court because Judge Joseph B. Williams, who is uh, NY, who was a NYU alumnus, said to me, he was a judge, in fact, the administrative judge of all of the family courts in New York. And he said, we need people like you on the family court. That planted the seed in my head. And that was the only court I ever tried to go to. I had a clerk who said to me one day, he would hit work with me. He got a promotion. He went to the Supreme Court. He called me one day and said, judge, I'll run your campaign. You should run for the Supreme Court. It's like a country club over here. But I said to him, no, no, Jan, this is my ministry. This is where I'm supposed to be, and this is where I will be. So I never aspired to go to any other court because I felt 
that I was making a difference just by a person walking in the courtroom because most of the respondents were people of color, African-American, Latina. And when they walk in, when you walk into a courtroom, it gives you some sense, I believe, that someone might listen to you if they mm-hmm. look like you or you have a feeling that they know your story. And from my background, I knew the stories of all the people that came into family court because much of it I had lived throughout my childhood, you know, so. You've touched on something that I think is really important about leadership. You've seen leadership in a variety of forms and you've chosen a very particular kind of leadership. You chose leadership from where you were. Yes. You chose leadership from your particular bench. How do you define leadership? To me, in terms of how I view it, it's a special quality of a person who has the ability to inspire and inspire people in such a way that they want to do their best, that they want to fulfill that responsibility. I don't see leadership, I see, and I see leadership also as teaching patience, teaching those who may be a little off, but you can see in them that they can do whatever. If you give them a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of guidance, and a little bit of training sometimes. People, and it's shown time and time again, I think in our educational system today, it's so prevalent that young people are not performing, young people of color special are not performing But if you look historically at where they come and what they were, they never had the basics to perform. And so in order to get them up to par, you have got to lay that foundation. So whenever I work with people, first of all, I show them a great deal of respect because if people don't think that you respect them, they don't like you. And it's not really all about liking but it's about a feeling that you are appreciated, a feeling that even if you go off, the person is going to say, okay, you know, this is what you did, but this is what you should have done. So how can you get that person from here to there? And the way you do that is with patience and with sitting down and talking, okay, what are you thinking about, you know? Why do you feel that it's this way instead of that way? In other words, not accusing, but trying to understand. The whole thing about leadership is that there's a lot of misconception about people, a lot of miscommunication, a lot of being the kind of leader that says it's this way and no other way. First of all, that's not good because you're not listening for new ideas and new ways of doing things. You're not growing. That's the whole thing about cultural diversity, getting people of different stages of different ethnicity, different efforts, so that you can grow. Otherwise, you're being just what you knew and what you learned and nothing else. So you have to listen. You have to be willing to incorporate other people's ideas into new ways of thinking, And you have to really just listen. You know, you have to be respectful about listening. 
and letting people share with you and then giving them a pat on the back or feedback or whatever you think is needed in that situation to help them to grow. One of the things that I think that makes you a great natural leader is that sense of mutuality and respect and reciprocity that we teach classes here about leadership. And we ask students often what the characteristic of the people who brought out the best in them. We ask them to list those characteristics. And often that is the primary characteristic is the person who listened to them. And that's the thing that you've defined, really, is the person who listens. And you really are amazing about that. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, if you don't listen, you never really, really ever can resolve a problem. Because you're thinking only what you're thinking, and you're not really getting why the other person made that decision, why they did that how they feel. Mm-hmm. So you have to listen. You were the co-founder of what is now known as the Law Alumni Association of Color around here. You've seen all kinds of different kinds of leaders. What can future leaders glean from your experience in order to assert themselves no matter where they are in their professional track other than just listen? I think that's the ideal advice. But I see a lot of different kinds of students here, a lot of different temperaments. So what advice would you give them when they're developing their leadership style? Well, I I think you have to, first of all, get involved in something you care about, that you really care about. It sparks up your passion. Yes. And in this environment, sometimes people just take the first thing that comes along because they feel like they need to be working or they need to be. But that doesn't bring out the best in you the best in the ideas that you might bring forth, the best in the efforts that you put towards making that thing happen, the best. So if you're involved in something that you really care about, that you're passionate about, the days just go. You just get involved and you throw yourself into it and you just bring other people along with you. And that's key when you're in a leadership position. You have to exemplify the type of passion, personality that brings other people into it. A gatherer. Yeah, you know, um, I'm thinking about that woman's march. These Mm -hmm. young people that just thought that us, they thought they were going to go to D.C. and have (laughs) a few women, you know. But they could see, and it, it was something that, I'm just amazed about how it happened and what it happened and how far-reaching it was globally. But just that little bit of an idea. Um, And that's what it is. What keeps me thinking a lot is, you may think this is small, but look at how many things have grown from just that little idea. And so it's according to how you treat it, how you look at it, how you work at it. That can make it big. Even the Laka, mm-hmm. formerly Blapa, mm-hmm. formerly whatever, it was just for students working together to just try to pull something together and did. And now as I look at leadership in that position and the way it has grown and all that has happened, I just sit back and say, wow, I was part of starting this. 
What were you trying to pull together in the first place? Just a little get-together of former alum, of alumni mm-hmm. who had gone to the school, um, hoping to have an organization, but never thinking that it would expand and grow the way it has. And It's one of the most feel-good, stirring, inspiring organizations that we have in these parts. Mm-hmm. Every year, that, that gathering... Um, makes everybody's heart beat faster. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just representative exciting. of us. It's just exciting. And thanks to our leadership and to people like Kelly, mm-hmm. who works so hard all year round to make sure that it's a sterling event, it has grown and has the potential to grow and grow. And I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. So grab onto something that you're passionate about. Stand up. Speak up, mm-hmm. let people know what it is, let them know what you stand for. And not only talk about what you stand for, you have to live what you stand for. Like there's these different sayings and I can't remember exactly, but people, I say that people can tell you anything, but it's what they actually do that makes the difference. And so leadership is about identifying something that you're passionate about, standing up for it, speaking up for it, and doing it. You've got to be out in front. You've got to take the responsibility. But at the same time, what I've learned is that once you're in a position where you give responsibilities to others, you have to respect them enough to let them do their job. Instead of interjecting, Always, because hopefully you have chosen people who have demonstrated that they can carry the torch for you. And so, that I mean, I have that situation now, and, and I'm sort of like, okay, Betty, sit back and relax. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the president of the Brooklyn Legal Services. We changed our name, but now the Brooklyn Legal Services. But in that capacity, they've given me the freedom to choose the kind of work I do. I don't I am not running this day to day operation. Good no, for you. No, no. I've done that, been there because I went back and forth to Brooklyn Legal Services. I was interim executive director and I was acting a decorative director, then I was director and then when they decided to consolidate three programs, which we did, South Brooklyn Legal Services, Bedside Legal Services and Brooklyn Branch, it just increased the number of staff people and I said no mm -mm, I'm not I don't want to do this so we selected a young woman Megan Fox to be the project director and in that capacity she runs a day-to-day and she does all the stuff I mean years ago I could have been a director but I didn't want to do budget I still don't want to do budget but there are other things, and when she asked me, you know, she might ask me, Betty, would you come to this meeting? Because it seems that just me sitting at a meeting puts a whole new kind of <laughs> calmness bet. to the environment. And so I go and I, you know, speak. But I let her do her job. Even though I've served in the capacity that she's serving in now on different occasions, I let her do her job, and she does it very well. You own it, but you get out of the way. I get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And I think you, to be a good leader, you have to do that. So it sounds like to me that your leadership, it's interesting because you talk about having a cause, 
But it also sounds like that it was a little bit of a slow burn for you. It picked up. But what was consistent is that you loved people along the way. You describe sitting there in your 1L year in the cafeteria or the student lounge being the wise consigliere (laughs) for the other students. Yes. And you prized, and I know this to be true about you, I've watched you for the last two decades, relationships. You really connect with people. And so, you know, I always ask uh, about secret sauce, what your superpower is, um, that distinct characteristic. What would you say is your your distinct characteristic about yourself? I know I think it's about the fact that you connect so well with other people. You prize relationships. But what would you say it is? I, to me, I have hardly ever met a person I didn't like. Mm-hmm. You know that's a riff on what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, there, there have been people that initially, because of their demeanor and their personality, mm-hmm. would seem to be put offish. But I always try to get to know them in a different way. Because when you get to know a person... There's always something that doesn't appear in the initial interaction. I won't call any names, but there were people that I said, oh, my God, why is she like that? You know. But then as you get to know them and you talk to them, you find out that they have, you know, this is just sometimes a facade or whatever. I've also been a person who since I was a child, wanted to help. I wanted to help. If I see a problem, my sister will say, oh, God, stop, you know. <laughs> there goes oh, Betty. Don't She's going to solve it. And, and my children, you know, we used to go walking, and if I saw somebody that was, I would try, they would say, Ma, don't do that. You can't go up to people in the streets and try to talk, you know. If I see them doing something that I think was inappropriate sometimes, I was just like, want to help. But I don't know. I think it's my personality. There, there, the people. For instance, a woman said to me, and I didn't know the woman. I interacted with her only on one occasion, maybe two. I was uh, doing a program, and she said to me out of the blue, because I, when I saw her, I didn't even recognize who she was, but she remembered our interaction. She said to me, "I love your spirit," and I think that. My spirit comes through because people are telling me that. I try to carry a face that's inviting, you know, mm-hmm. no frowning, no, you know, just a pleasant demeanor about myself. Always, I try. Um, and it's very seldom, even on the bench. Because when I was on the bench, and even now when I go back to court, and I left the bench 11 years ago, no, actually seven or eight years ago, are you coming back, Judge? We need you. When are you coming back? Are you going to sit again? We don't have anyone like you anymore, you know. And so it was, I think, the way I respected them. Even a young attorney, because (laughs) some of them... Some of the uh, uh, judges would be so tough on the young attorneys, but I would remember that I was once in that place. And so I would be very patient with them, 
not let them feel disrespected or anything. And maybe afterwards we'll call them to the bench and suggest, you know, counsel, maybe next time you want to do this, that, the other mm-hmm. thing. But always, and not embarrass them in front of their peers right. and all, you know. But that was just my way. Um, I think it's just some innate spiritual quality that I was blessed with. Well, that's a good superpower to have. Mm-hmm. I will tell a little anecdote about you. This is probably, I, I don't know, it could be a good 15 years ago. I know a former dean was uh, running the shop, and we were at an event. A huge crowd was there, and um, there was a little hubbub at the entrance, and I couldn't see who came in, but there was a hubbub, a flock of people, and it looked like there was a little light over the entrance. And somebody said to me, who is that? And I said, off the cuff, oh, I think Betty Staten just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to this day, it was, it was kind of a, it was a joke because you had, in fact, just walked in. <laughs> um, and I think it was just that, you know, the sun had moved just right. Yes, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I credit a complete coincidence. Um, but it always tickled me because there does seem to be a, a certain lightness of being uh, when you enter a room, and I'm I'm always grateful for that. So I thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, just you can put that in your arsenal. Yes. Um, when you think back, I'll I'll always end these discussions with one more question. When you think back to your younger self, and I know you went to law school when you were a full-on grown-up yes. with kids, <laughs> but when you think back to when you started law school. What advice would you give yourself? Would I give myself? The advice that I would give myself is the same thing that I lived by when I was a law student. And that is my belief, because let me say this. The first time I took the bar, I will tell young people, is the first time I took the bar, I failed the bar. Good for you. Thank you for saying that out loud. And... When I first failed the ball, it was like, oh. But then I said to myself, the same thing that took me through, God did not put me here. God did not bring me this far to fail. So every day that I came to law school in my first year was a challenge. Because I was older, the students were younger, Um, I had responsibilities at home. I had all of that pressure. But every single day, I knew that I had a higher power that was going to get me through. And so I would say to any law student, just hold on to that self, whatever you call it, because Desirata, one of my favorite poems, says, you know, that you rely on your God, whoever, whatever you call him by, whatever you draw strength from, you need to just say, okay, I'm drawing strength, and I know that that strength will uphold me and see me through. Because the first year is the only year, really, that gives you any problem. Once you get over the first year, you'll find, oh, this is just like I've done it before. I also, I would tell law students, I tell students, period, That coming to law school and being in the first year is like anything you've ever done for the first time. The more you do it, the easier it comes. And so 
next year you'll realize that this was a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. Right now you're going through it. It seems difficult to you. It's not all that hard. So just be confident. Just know that you'll get through it. And just keep on doing what you're doing. Just know that you'll get through it. And I knew that I'd get through it. I knew because I've always been confident. Because I consider it divine intervention all along the way for me getting to law school. And so I knew, you know, I have a scripture. I'm sorry, I have to say my scripture. Which is a scripture that God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, Mm -hmm. give you hope and a future. And I said, okay, that's my scripture. The plan is, I have, they have the divine plan, and for all that's the, the circuitous route that it took me to get to law school, this is what I was supposed to do. And also, being on the bench, that is what I, what all of this part of my life, the first part of my life up to the time that I went back to school, and I was almost 38 when I went back to high school, to a um, Brooklyn college. All of that time, you know, I don't know what I would call it. You know, in seven years, in seven years, spurts, you see it. But it was leading up to where I was supposed to be. If I had married that first man, he was so domineering, I probably never would have gone back to school. <laughs> and if I had stayed married to the sat, my husband... He had no expectations. So being divorced gave me the freedom to, for, for the plan to come together. So that's how your life is. You have to look at your life as design. And sometimes we take a route that doesn't take us directly to where we should be. But if we are careful and we listen and we embrace the things that come into our lives... And and it's funny because when my cousin asked me if I want if I thought of being a lawyer and I decided, everything opened for me. Right. As I tell young people, once you, <coughs> once you get to the place where you're supposed to be, it becomes easy. I was supposed to be in NYU, I got a full scholarship and a stipend. I don't know why I fail a lot, but anyway, it just gave me more determination to overcome. The first time that I went before Dinkins, he didn't appoint me. He appointed my friend, but I, it came. You know, and then each step, as I look back, and even now as I'm still working, but trying to, there's something in my mind that I still want to do and trying to figure out what that is. It's like on the tip of my tongue. When something's like on the tip of your tongue, it's on the tip of my brain. And I'm looking at different things, even at my age, because I'm in my 80s. Wow. Uh, but I just feel like there's something else. I can't just sit home and watch TV or do something. There's so much to be done. So I like I'm that the like, path is still emerging for you. Yes. There, there's just too much in the world that has to be done that you just sit back and not do anything. You have to, especially with the skill. And I got it late, so I said, okay, I got to work extra long in order to show the appreciation. That's right. You, you still have some growth to, you still still have have some growth to impart. And, you know, I always ask this question, the final question, which is now you even have to go back a little bit further to your, to your smaller self mm. before law school, before high school, before you met that tall, handsome guy. 
What do you think your younger self, your younger, younger self would think of you now? My younger self might say, what took you so long? Yeah. Um, I was born on a farm in North Carolina, delivered by a midwife. Uh-huh. And was there until I was nine, nine and a half. And I really, really experienced racial injustice during those days because I had to walk three miles to a wooden schoolhouse, three rooms, three miles home. And the schoolhouse only had three rooms, but it had grades kindergarten through eighth. So they were like, in one room, it was the kindergarten first and second. In another room, it was a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. In another room, it was third, fourth, and fifth. In another room, it was sixth, seventh, and eighth. Now, if my mom hadn't migrated during the Great Migration, as they call it, I don't know what I would have done because there was no high school for us to go to. Wow. And my mom's education stopped at eighth grade because that's how high the school went. And there was no high school. There was no bus. Even though every morning a bus passed me carrying the white kids to a brick school. Sure. Which was about a little ways past our school. But there was no bus for us. You had no opportunity. And so my younger self knew because... Again, your life is planned for you. Your divine plan for you starts in utero, in in the mother's womb. So there was a plan already out there for me. That plan just had to be fulfilled. And there's a plan, a good plan. There's a plan for every every person. The students have to know there's a, a divine plan for every person. And some of those, some people follow the plan and some people don't. And why they don't, I don't know, because it's free choice. You make a choice. But if you're diligent about doing your very best and taking on the responsibilities and doing what is right, you'll fulfill the plan. It can't, you can't escape it. But if you don't, you can make some very bad decisions. That's why when I mean, you look at people that are homeless or whatever, of course they're mental, mentally ill people that can't help themselves. But um, some healthy, able-bodied people just make bad decisions. You just have to make your best decisions. And life is good. Life is good. Desirata. I mean, do you know that poem? I do. You do? Of course. When it talks about... With all is sham and drudgery, mm-hmm. it is still a beautiful world. Strive to be happy. And that's what you have to do every day because life is short, even the longest, but sometimes very short. Like, look at what happened in Manchester. Yeah. Look at what happened. Babies killed. So life is short. You have to just embrace it and live it the best way, not only for yourself, but also in serving. Seize every moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you have certainly done that with uh, every day of your life. <laughs> and this has been a remarkable conversation. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. For sharing Thank your you time for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, it's been really a pleasure. Mm-hmm. My deep pleasure to have you here. Thank you. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, 
And to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership. 